As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Tom Butler. And I'm Brendan Duffy. You're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies as we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind, from Ken Adam to Max Zorin, with the occasional detour down a few rabbit holes. And we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand, E.ON, or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something, or add some more detail, email us on podcast at jamesbondatz.co.uk. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast where we have reached the letter W. My name is Tom Butler and joining me as we explore the creators and characters from the world of Bond that fall under the 23rd letter of the alphabet, it's the wicked and wild Mr. Brendan Duffy. Well, hello there. Well, well, well. Um, as you can probably hear, I'm a little bit under weather at the moment, so apologies for the huskiness. Um, and if I sound confused, it's because I am. Um, yeah, but that has been the same for 100 episodes. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Um, now, obviously, there's a lot of interesting characters that fall into the letter W. Um, also, a handful of writers and creatives. But first, W is for weapon. Yes, and specifically, W is for the Walther PPK. Are we going with Walther or Walter? I never, I was never really sure. No, me either. I think it, I've heard both. Really? Yeah. So Let's stick with Walther. Walther. Okay, Walther PPK. The Walther PP. Do you, do you know what it stands for? Um, I have no idea. No. Yeah, I didn't until uh, until I started researching, which is which is bizarre. I thought I'd look that up sooner, but it's Polizei Pistol. So, what do you think that means? It's German. A police pistol. Yeah, it's nice and easy right. that one, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, um, it's a semi-automatic pistol and. It's manufactured in, still manufactured in Germany, France, and the US. They still make it. Yep, yep, still very popular. Um, so the PP and the PPK, 
So they they were among the first successful double action semi-automatic pistols. Now, does that mean anything to you? No, no, nothing. I guess it means that the uh, that the shells drop into place of their own accord. I, okay, I, I, I mean, I American imagine. listeners probably know a lot yeah, more about this stuff exa- than we do. Exactly. So yeah, they're very successful and manufactured by Walther still, and are so successful. The design is so iconic that that many other companies copy it, um, and did copy it at the time when it first came out as well. The PP and the PPK, they were both popular with police in Europe because they're reliable and they're concealable. And it's the right reliability that we we get in Dr. No, because if you remember, his Beretta jammed. And so M tells him that he needs to change his gun, if you remember that scene. Walter PPK. 7.65 mil with a delivery like a brick through a plate glass window. Takes a Brausch silencer with very little reduction in muzzle velocity. The American CIA swear by them. Thank you, Major Brother Ryder. Thank you, sir. Good night, sir. Any questions, 007? No, sir. All right, then. Best of luck. Thank you, sir. Double O seven, sir. Just leave the Beretta. I do, yeah, I remember it well. It comes from the books, doesn't it? Because in it the does. books he has the Beretta, and then it's when um, I'm sure you'll come up cover this. But when uh, Major Boothroyd comes to him and tells Fleming he's got the wrong gun, uh, that's when he swaps it, and it uh, that swap happens. I think just in time it, it, for, exactly. for Doctor No, yeah, exactly that. So in the novels, it was in 1958 that the swap was made. So Bond did have a 25 Beretta in the early novels, but six novels in, yeah, like you said. He got some advice from an expert because Fleming didn't really know his weapons. So when he chose the Beretta at the time, it was just a pistol that he'd chosen for Bond in the novels. But then as the novels became more famous and people were reading them, advice was sort of unsolicited advice, I think, uh, yeah. was was given. So the PPK also during World War Two were issued to the German military uh, including the Luftwaffe and detectives, uh, plainclothes detectives of the criminal Polizei. Um, so it's got its dark past as well, uh, the PPK. So yeah, the, the common the common variant is the Walther PPK, the one that we, we know from the films. There is a smaller version, which is the PP, which I've been talking about. Um, and that's got a shorter, again, the Americans will know what this is. It's got a shorter grip, a shorter barrel and shorter frame. The grip is the handle, I think. Is that right? You'd thought so, yeah. yeah. But also it means it's got reduced capacity for shells. So Because the shells are presumably go in the handle, in the grip. That's right, yeah. There's some yeah. good X-ray uh, of and, and sort of design blueprints of, of it. So you can see where the, where the bullets sort of... Uh, I don't like calling them bullets because someone's going to email in and go, they're not bullets. Yeah, and you the can rounds. see the rounds. Yeah, you can see where yeah. it loads into the into the into the pistol. So the PPK that's an abbreviation for Polizei Pistol Cree. So yeah, it was released in 1931, the original PP, and yeah, the PPK then was you know it was used by lots of people. Um, and Adolf Hitler actually killed himself with his PPK in the Führer right. bunker in Berlin. Yeah, wow. It was also a PPK that was carried by Princess Anne's personal uh, protection that jammed during a kidnapping attempt of the princess and her husband. So wow. reliable, but you know sometimes still can jam. And yeah, so 
obviously back back to the it, its usage during the war and moving through the 50s this meant that for, for for Ian Fleming to then use it in his novels made sense because it was widely used by undercover detectives and and you know into the spy people in the spy world in real life so of course that's that's where that where Boothroyd was coming from when he suggested that mm. you know it would make more sense for Bond to use this rather than his yeah. Beretta. Although in the film, in Doctor No, he was given a PPK. The actual gun that Sean Connery has is a Walther PP. Oh, right. So it's not even a PPK. We were lied to. So then from then on, um, for the first film all the way up to, any guesses what film we have the PPK up to as Bond's weapon of choice? Well, I know that uh, Live and Let Die, Roger Moore's got a different gun, hasn't he? But I don't know whether he still has the PPK. He, still, he does still have the PPK in that one. Right. So, yeah. so then they changed the PP for uh, another Walther gun in um, is it Tomorrow Never Dies. It is. Well done. Yes. They changed it to the Walther P99. And then yeah. from then on, Pierce Brosnan would use the Walther P- P99. And so then we move to the Daniel Craig era and the promotional material for Casino Royale. Now, it did feature the PPK, but it was only used during that pre-title sequence. Right. From then on, Bond used the P99. But the PPK made a return in Quantum of Solace, and that was his main main choice there. And he went on to use it throughout Skyfall as well. Um, but it was slightly modified, if you remember that scene where he gets handed the modified gun. It's got a uh, fingerprint scanner, hasn't it? Yes, yeah. it has, yeah. So that it can only be used by him. Or palm uh, print scanner or something. The, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's been been there the whole time. I'm not really au fait with weapons, and, and, and that part of Bond doesn't overly interest me, to be honest. What what about you? No, I mean, it's, it's just... Um, it's, it's Well, guns of violence, aren't they? It's um, yeah. it's kind of not an yeah. area of interest to me. I'd love to fire one, though. You know, if I was, like, in America and I went to a shooting range and got to have a there's, go, I'd love to... Well, to there's some good like. videos that I've watched on YouTube um, of people firing them and explaining what it feels like to fire it. So, um, hmm. yeah, it would be interesting to do it in a safe environment <laughs> to fire it, yeah. Interesting... Uh, that Jack Lord, who played Felix Leiter, he was given a gold-plated PPK with <laughs> right. with hand grips made of ivory. Any guesses who gave him that? Uh, it's nobody related to Bond. Right, okay. But well, it's a big no star, idea. a big star. I have no idea. Elvis Presley. I was about to say Liberace. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly different. <laughs> Um, yeah, Elvis Presley gave him it as a gift, and you can you can Google that and have a look. It's uh, it's a pure. It looks looks like a solid gold gun, to be honest. The the, the original because, man be, with the golden gun. So because he was in Doctor No, or is there any explanation? No, they were they were friends. Gave him this? They were friends, right? Um, and Elvis actually had a silver PPK himself. Um, so obviously he was a fan of the pistol, uh, but Elvis's was inscribed with TCB. And that stands for taking care of business. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so yeah, it's got it's got an interesting, you know, a few nuggets of its past, to be honest, as well, which is quite nice. Yeah, I mean, if you, I'm looking around at pictures I have up of Bond, and and he's holding a Walther PPK in every single one, so it's like yeah. one of the most synonymous hmm. parts of the series, isn't it? Um, yeah. Even more so than the Aston Martin, it's probably 
even more so than the the vodka martini. Really, it's um, it's it's part and parcel of his character, isn't it? Absolutely, and also uh, was in the game Goldeneye, wasn't it? It was, of course. That was the, yeah, that was the wep- the weapon of choice. But I think due to licensing, it wasn't called the PPK. No, that is issues, isn't they, with the um, the guns in that because they all had to give them more weird names like the clob yeah. and. Yeah. Um, the, just to bring it back to the PPK, the K actually stands for criminal. Ah, that's what Cree so is, criminal. Polizei, pistol, criminal, um, referring to the unit that uses them, apparently, ah. in the German police. That makes the sense. Criminal Crime Investigation Office. So there you go. So there you go. There's the Walther PPK. So on to something completely different. W is for Wanstall, Norman Wanstall. Now, Norman Wanstall is a British sound designer and he worked on Doctor No, From Russia With Love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, You Only Live Twice and then Never Say Never Again. So instrumental parts of the very uh, early Bond films and the success of those films. And he won James Bond, the James Bond film's very first Oscar winning sound editing for Goldfinger at the 1964 Academy Awards, which we'll come to. So Norman Wanstall was born in 1939, uh, 35, and he's now in his late 80s, but he's still around, still with us. Um, and interestingly, he got his start in the film industry through his mother, through the mother of a school friend who was the assistant to the production controller at Pinewood Studios. Mm. He visited the studio as her guest, um, and actually visited the set of Hell Below Zero, the Cubby Broccoli Warwick film production as a youngster. And so then upon leaving school and doing his national service, he contacted his friend there after he returned from his national service. She invited him in and he was taken on as a trainee film editor under contract for three years. So he's got this contract, but he admitted uh, that he was sort of disappointed to be assigned to the editorial department. He said, my duties were mainly paperwork and taking cans of film up to projection box i was a bit disillusioned to be honest obviously he was expecting to see you know the sets and all that sort of stuff but it's oh, sort of, course, sort of yeah. much more of a back back room job but he soon learned uh, sort of how important editing um, and sound editing was and he ended up falling into working on dubbing working for a guy assisting a guy called harry miller who was the sort of the senior dubbing editor at pinewood but when his contract came to an end he uh, rather than going and joining another studio, which was something that he was offered, he decided to become assistant to a, a freelance dubbing editor called Winston Ryder, because Winston Ryder was the guy who was getting all the big jobs and all the big movies. So rather than being stuck with one studio where they would just do the studio's films, he was going to go with Winston Ryder, do lots of different really big films. And one of the films that he worked on with Winston Ryder was Sink the Bismarck, which was a film that was edited by... Peter Hunt, mm. who again would be very important in the Bond story. So when Peter's assistant left, he left Winston Ryder to go and work for Peter instead, because um, this guy Winston Ryder apparently was a bit temperamental. So then, fate would have it, Peter Hunt went on to work on Doctor No, and he took Norman Monster with him, and basically the, the rest is history. So. Um, Talking about Dr. No, in an interview, Norm Wanstall said, we knew we had a very cool character in Sean Connery and his memorable close-up saying, Bond, James Bond. We knew we had some great sequences and it was one of those films that could go either way and it was just luck, really, that it turned out to be such a success. The budget on Dr. No was such that the production could not afford two dubbing editors required for a busy soundtrack, one for dialogue, one for sound effects. So Peter promoted me to sound effects editor and I continued in that role for the next uh, four Bond pictures. 
talking about his sound effect with work on those early movies, I mean, you've got to just think about some of the work that he was responsible for. And when I say, you know, that the sound design of that final confrontation with Dr. No, you know, when the nuclear um, room is all sort of starting to bur- gurgle to life and all the sound effects yeah. there, that's him. The train fight on From Russia With Love, you know, the bit where they smash the window and all oh. the sound goes up. Yeah. That's him. Thinking about Goldfinger, the car crusher, you know, when the car gets crushed and you hear it all crunching in and cr- cr- crinkling together. Yeah. Odd job, the f- sound of Odd Job's flying hat. Yeah. The, the laser. laser table. Yeah. yeah. The laser table. Yeah. And then obviously you've got um, Thunderball and all the incredible work they did with the underwater stuff. Um, and then You Only Live Twice. I mean, that's another amazing sound design film. Many people have tried to involve themselves in my affairs unsuccessfully. But that's all that's all Norman Monstall, basically, a very important part of those films. Um, and talking about his relationship with Peter Hunt, he said, Peter and I had a very special relationship. I can never thank him enough for the faith he placed in me. He repaid my dedication and loyalty a hundredfold. Um, and he talks about the sort of different films that he worked on. Um, again, highlighting that Dr. No's lab as one of the biggest sound effects challenges he ever worked on. He also says that the sound of Oddjob's flying hat mm. is the sound effect he'll, he believes he'll be remembered for. Um, but his favourite was that car crusher scene. Uh, he says most of that sound came back from the States with that scene just wasn't good enough. So I virtually had to start from scratch. Very many tracks were mixed together and I love all the crunching metal and broken and breaking glass. And then this is the film that earned him the Oscar. Um, so at the time, the idea of a sound Oscar was was quite new. Um, and so when he got a, a, a telegram from the American Academy, he said he had to it, it was hard to take seriously. But he flew out to L.A., realized that he had, there was only other one nominee in that category. So he had a 50 50 chance of winning it. And he won. And he was just 29 when he won that wow. Oscar. In an interview later on, he said, I think it's fair to say the sounds that my colleagues were most keen to hear were the laser beam in Goldfinger and the rocket in the volcano in You Only Live Twice, both of which were created by the BBC Radiophonic Workshop on spec. So if you've heard of these guys before, the Radiophonic Workshop, but they're quite famous for working on uh, Doctor Who and doing mm. a lot of the sound effects on there. Yeah. But then things became a little bit strained, unfortunately. Peter became obviously very, very important to the success of the films um, with Cubby and Harry. And sadly, when Guy Hamilton came on the scene, they he started to clash with Peter. And the, so the relationship then became a bit strained between Norman and Peter and Peter and everyone else, basically. Um, and so after You Only Live Twice, sadly, they went their separate ways and Norman went on to do um he wanted to become a director Uh, so peter wanted to go on to be a director norman wanted to go on and be an editor um rather than a sound editor so that was it really that was his end of his stint on bond but he says um in an interview later on i actually retired from the film business around 1977 when i left the south of england and moved to my new life in hereford countryside i retrained as a plumbing and heating engineer never intended to work on movies again However, he did return for one last hurrah when he was invited to work on Never Say Never Again. So he said, he, I accepted the invitation to return to the film industry for Never Say Never Again because I thought it would Ironic. be a new adventure. Yeah. And uh, also my experience on Thunderball would be useful to the production. 
Mm. Um, but looking back, he said it was a terrible experience. <laughs> it was certainly as chaotic and disorganised as you've been led to believe. For the for a start, the production had committed the cardinal sin of not making sure the script was watertight before they started shooting. So that was it, basically. He worked on all these amazing films, went on to be a successful director in his own right, gave it all up to be a plumbing and heating engineer, came back for Never Say Never Again, and then gave it all up again. Wow. So, quite interesting, really. Quite, yeah. a, quite a career. Um, and now just, again, he's retired now, but like went back to being a plumbing and heating engineer. Surely um, had to be the only plumbing and heating engineer with an Oscar. With an Oscar, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but his other credits include On the Fiddle, which was the Connery movie that brought him to the attention of Peter Hunt. And then also Call Me Buona and The Ipcrest File as well. So um, some big movies that he worked on in his time. But uh, yeah, very much, a, 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 like you say, the only plumbing engineer with an Oscar. Yeah. And... A, a, a hidden, a real hidden figure of those early Bond films, and and yet really important, mm, massively so. Yeah. And you've got to, I mean, you got when we talk about Doctor No, you know, you think about Ken Adam and Sean Connery and um, Terence Young as being the key creatives, but actually, you know, all these things don't work without the sound being on as well. Exactly. So, um, yeah. Um, yeah. Incredible work, really. So W is for. Waller Bridge, Phoebe Waller Bridge. Well, Phoebe Mary, Mary Waller Bridge is her full name. She is an actor, writer, comedian, and uh, a TV producer. So, uh, got many strings to her bow. Um, she was born in 1985, and she is one of the co-writers of No Time to Die. So she was on board to revise some dialogue and develop some characters and add some humor to the script so the character of paloma her her role was made more significant from what was originally uh just a scene where bond makes contact yeah um, she's given a bigger role there um purvis and wade said that um that that was probably probably written um at Kerry fukunaga's request to pad that character out a bit more but michael g wilson has said that um phoebe waller bridge had a had a major contribution to the final film and he said she gave us an interesting point of view for several of the characters it's unfair to think of her as a female writer she contributed to the whole plot of the film and herself she was asked about it as well and she said that she was asked to do dialogue polishes and to offer things it's just about offering different alternatives they did give me some scenes and then be like, can you write some alternatives for this or have another idea about where it could go in the middle, how it would end? And so she would go back to the drawing board and, and come up with some ideas and head back to the director. Um, and uh, Kerry was obviously involved in the writing as well. So they were able to collaborate with with some things. And obviously Purvis and Wade had done, had done a version as well. So there's a lot of people chipping in on this one. Um, but yeah, she she was there to to offer quite a lot to the to the script more so than I think she originally thought. Um, and Daniel Craig was also asked about it, and he that they they were asking the Sunday Times were asking about her gender and whether that's an important thing, and he got quite angry about it. And he said, "Look, we're having a conversation about Phoebe's gender here, which is fucking ridiculous. She's a great writer. Why shouldn't we get Phoebe on board?" And he, yeah, it, it really riled it up him up. Because he said, I know where you're going, but I don't actually want to have that conversation. I know what you're trying to do. It's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. She's a fucking great writer, one of the best English writers around. And I said, can we get her on the film? That's where it came from. 
So you can understand, you know, to just say she's only on board to try and make it more progressive is is highly unfair, considering the work that she's done prior to this. Yeah. And then obviously she's asked about a female bond, of course, because um, that's that's what they're always asking, isn't it? Um, and they were going to bound to ask her. And she said, I think Bond is James Bond. We need to cook up someone to rival him. But she she was asked if she would create that character. And she just said that she she has to be careful to, to what she says about that. So uh, who knows? Maybe watch this space. Maybe she will be the one to come up with a, a, a character to rival Bond, female character. Mm. Um, but Phoebe Waller-Bridge herself, yeah, she was, she's from quite a privileged aristocratic background. You don't say. <laughs> Both of her grandfathers were baronets. And I don't know where that sits, but it sounds quite... It's a title, isn't it? That's enough. Get yeah. Hilary Bray on the case. He'll... Yeah. <laughs> but she's probably best known for either Fleabag, uh, the sitcom, yep. the BBC sitcom, or being the produce, executive producer, the writer of Killing Eve, which she adapted for, yeah. for the BBC. Which um, is in the spy world, right, isn't it? Or it's sort of hitmen. It, and... Yeah, yeah, that sort of, yeah, that sort of vibe. But she's also an actor, so you, you'll see her pop up in things. She was in Broadchurch. She was in The Iron Lady, Goodbye Christopher Robin. And she played a, a droid in Solo. Did you know that? She played the droid, yeah, the main droid. I can't yeah. think what his, what his name was. L337. There you go. And her upcoming project obviously she's going to be in the indiana jones film which is due for release it's in summer 2023 the dial of destiny depending on when you listen to this you might have seen it by now yeah so yeah that that's what she, she i mean obviously very recent addition to the to the bond world but who knows what will happen moving forward because it seems like people are impressed with the work she put in yeah Definitely. And it, it, like you say, Daniel, I think Daniel Craig was quite instrumental in bringing her into the fold, wasn't yeah, he? he was, yeah. um, But they were sort of very much full of praise for her. And I think, obviously, the amount of work... You get script writers and script doctors on these things all the time, right? Yeah. Um, but the fact that her her contribution was significant enough to get a credit on it suggests mm-hmm. that it was quite, you know, quite weighty because... You don't bring a, and you can get screen doc, script doctors in to fix problems or what have you, and they mm. don't do enough to earn a credit. Exactly, Obviously she did enough yeah. to earn the credit, and therefore she's one of the listed uh, screenwriters. Yeah. And there was a rumor after or before No Time Time No Time to Die came out that she was being hired to write solo write Bond twenty six, which um, uh, seems like a bit of a reach, but uh, who knows? Might be might, there might be a nugget of truth to that. I mean, why not? Why not just go for it? Yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd be completely open to having a go. You know, I think. Yeah, it needs and, you some know, fresh uh, writers. Yeah, and uh, Neil and Robert probably will stick around in the background. But like, I mean, they did it before, didn't they? Which was the, was it? John Logan that wrote yeah. Skyfall on his own, yeah. and then it all got changed. But like, yeah, let them have a go. Like, what's the worst that could happen? Yeah, exactly. Especially if she's, uh, you know, she wrote one of the best parts of the film, in my opinion. You know, if that was her padding out Paloma's right, yeah. inclusion. I read another bit that was hers uh, directly, which was the interrogation scene between Bond and Blofeld, which um, is an interesting scene when you watch it. Um, mm. It's the one where he goes full Benoit Blanc. Um, and yeah. There's a bit of humour to, to it. Yeah, it's, it's good. 
Well, that's what I think she's great at doing. You know, bring, yeah. bringing the humour to it without it being full Roger. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> A woman. <laughs> Coffee, medium sweet. Two, medium sweet. Thanks for listening. We hope you're enjoying the James Bond A to Z podcast. Remember, if you want to support the show, we have a coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash James Bond A to Z, where you can buy us a coffee for just £3 or for £3 a month. Thanks for listening. Back to the show. Is that all it does? So from one writer to the other, W is for Jack Whittingham, and he was a British British playwright and screenwriter whose brush with Bond is limited to his involvement on Thunderball and subsequently Never Say Never Again. So born in Yorkshire in 1910, Jack Whittingham read law at Oxford and then worked for a number of newspapers in the 1930s before moving into screenwriting, working with Alexander Corder. Now, his first produced screenplay was a film called Q-Planes, Quite interestingly, in mm. 1939, it starred Laurence Olivier. It was about a secret service and he received an original story credit. So you can see an early interest in espionage writing. So like many of his peers, he served during the in the army during World War Two, had his first book published in 1942 and then had lots of screenplays produced in the 1940s. And then in 1948, he joined Ealing Studios under contract and had many more films produced. 1956, he joins a company called British Lions, and then uh, in 1959, get that klaxon ready, Brendan, Kevin McClory contacts Jack Whittingham for a meeting. See our Never Say Never (laughs) Again episode for more details on the sordid saga of um, Thunderball and uh, Never Say Never Again. But just to give it a summary, Ian Fleming was working with um, Kevin McClory on a film project which would eventually become the Thunderbolt book, then the film. And Fleming had written a first draft for the film. And after giving notes and offering suggestions, Jack Whittingham was then hired to work on Thunderball with them for £5,000. And his outline um, was James Bond of the Secret Service, then Latitude, whatever that was, what, what was it called? Longitude 78 West or whatever that version was. Yeah. Um, um, but he, Jack Whittingham completes his screenplay, the film is retitled Thunderball, um, and by completing the screenplay, I mean, he's completed his part of the contract that he had with Kevin McClory for £5,000. He hands the, hands, the, hands the screenplay over, that's him, done and dusted. He has no copyright over the screenplays. Um, so th- this is there's no progress but basically being made with this screenplay, though, um, and this is late 1959, early 1960. Uh, and just to give you a bit of a, a, a summary of Jack Whittingham's draft for Thunderball, um, the villains in it are the Mafia, and it involves the hijacking of atomic bombs, which the Mafia are holding to ransom for £100 million. Um, the website Spy Command's got a really good analysis of this, so I'd urge you to, to look through um, their uh, their look at Jack Whittingham's script. But it says that Bond doesn't appear on the script until page 26, which, uh, if you go by filmmaking rules, that means he doesn't appear in the film until 26 minutes into the film, which is kind of crazy, really. Mm. Uh, Largo is the main villain, uh, but he's an Italian mafia boss, and he has a mistress called Gabby. Uh, Felix Leiter is in it, as he is in the Finnish Thunderball, but uh, Leiter gets captured and he gets held hostage on Largo's boat. 
Um, there's a Baccarat game between Bond and Largo, like there is in the film, but it comes much later in the game. There is an underwater battle, as there is in the film. Um, and then at the end, Largo and Gabby escape in the plane, in a plane with one of the bombs on board. And Gabby then sets the bomb off midair. And this explosion happens as the plane is flying away. And Bond is like, she did it. She finally did it. Um, so that's it. It's very different to, to the Thunderball we got. Um, so this script is, is kicking about. But in late 1960, Fleming does his deal with his publisher to publish a book called Thunderball as the ninth Bond book. And that's going to be published in March 61. Kevin McClory and Jack Whittingham take out the injunction to stop the book being published, but it's too late and the book is published with no acknowledgement to Jack Whittingham or Kevin McClory's input. Um, interestingly, around this time in May 1961, both Ian Fleming and Jack Whittingham both suffer heart attacks and there is correspondence between the two of them that's very genial, very cordial. So it's clear that Whittingham had an affinity for Fleming Whittingham also had a relationship, a business relationship with Kevin McClory, which puts Whittingham at a really sort of sticky predicament mm-hmm. between the two of them. Um, and then obviously in, in, in mid-61, the deal is done for ha- Cubby and Harry to do the movies, the Bond movies. So this is when um, the court case happens. That that happens a few years later in 63. And it's, first of all, it's, it's Kevin McClory and Jack Whittingham versus Ian Fleming and Ivor Bryce. But then the court case is changed to Kevin McClory versus Ian Fleming and Ivor Bryce with Jack Whittingham as a principal witness. And this was done because Whittingham has basically transferred his ownership of the script to McClory. So this would protect him from any losses if they did lose the court case. He had no rights in the screenplay should they win, but he had 50% liability for the costs if they lost, Mm. right? So he was protecting himself, rightly so. So that court case was just Kevin McClory. And the case was actually was settled 10 days later. McClory got the film rights, £50,000 in damages. Um, and then the book has uh, Whittingham and McClory's names added to it. So Whittingham really doesn't come out of it with, with anything. Um, so then he then issues his own writ against uh, Ian Fleming for damages, for libel, malicious falsehood and damage to professional reputation. But this never sees court because Fleming dies in 64. So the the case gets dropped. And sadly, Kevin McClory at this stage just completely turns his back on Jack Whittingham. Despite all the hard work and all the promises that they made each other to work with each other on Thunderball. And obviously, Whittingham, um, McClory did a deal with Harry and Cubby to make Thunderball. Um, became the producer and Kevin, uh, Jack Whittingham was thinking, well, I'm going to get brought in to be work on the script again mm. and blah, blah, blah. But no, he's just completely pushed to one side. So quite a sad end for that relationship, really. Yeah. And in an interview later, his daughter, Sylvan, said, my father was bitterly disappointed that after the court case in which he supported Kevin to no great advantage to himself, Kevin simply turned his back on him and went ahead, making Thunderball without him and without even notifying him. Um... So obviously Richard Maybaum would write the script for Thunderball. Jack Whittingham was not involved at all. And so, yeah, it was it was kind of a sad situation for, for Jack Whittingham, really. He'd really had a lot of time for, for Ian Fleming, but he'd stood up for Kevin in court and screwed over Ian Fleming, really. Um, so aside from Thunderball, Jack Whittingham wrote some scripts for the TV series Danger Man. He also wrote the screenplay for Disney's Prince and the Pauper. 
and he wrote a unproduced screenplay based on John Pearson's uh, biography of Ian Fleming that he'd written for the Sunday Times. So he did, he had that interest in Fleming there that you can mm. see, um, yeah. but it was never made. Uh, sadly, in 1971, Jack Whittakin was diagnosed with throat cancer and died a year after of a heart attack in Malta. And according to his daughter, he would consume a lot of alcohol and horrendous amounts of tobacco. Mm. Uh, talking back on the story, his daughter said, I never heard my father say a word against Ian Fleming. Jack understood the situation between Kevin and Ian, though, and he chose to support Kevin because he felt it was the right thing to do. He had a good regard for Ian and they never fell out. Sadly, this isn't the end of the story for Jack Whittingham. In 1975, Ivor Bryce, Fleming's friend, um, he writes a book. Uh, of his own story called You Only Live Once, in which he horrendously libels Kevin McClory and Jack Whittingham, um, saying all sorts of stuff about the two of them. I think that they were sort of money-grabbing people and what have you. Mm. So Kevin McClory took Ivor Bryce to court, citing that he was sad, that, citing a sadness that Jack Whittingham was not there to defend himself from wanton libel, and he won the court case. The statements were taken out of the book, an apology was issued and damages, substantial sum of damages was paid to Kevin McClory. But guess what? Go on. He gave none of it to uh. Jack Whittingham's widow or family. And they didn't even know the case had gone to court until many, many years later. Uh, so they never got any of the money from Kevin McClory, even though he took him to court to defend yeah. his, uh, his, his deceased friend's uh, good name. So sad, a very sad end to that tale, really. Yeah, I just can't understand Kevin McClory's way of thinking because he's been screwed over himself by Fleming. In you know, that's how he thinks, and then he goes and screws over Jack Whittingham with the Thunderball, you know, film. I don't, I don't get why. Yeah, it just seems like really sort of nasty way to operate. Yeah, very sad, really. Mm. And um, I mean, uh, Whittingham's name's not. I mean, obviously, they made Never Say Never Again, and Whittingham's name's barely on it. I think it's got a, a story by credit mm. or something like that. So, um, yeah, sad, really. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. So from one writer to another writer. Oh, go on. Uh, w is for Wood, Christopher Wood. So he was born 1935 and was an English writer of screen and novels. In terms of Bond, so he he adapted two Bond novels for, for the films, but he also did the novelizations of those films as well. Mm. Do you know which two films they are off the top of your head? I I mean, they're written in front of me, so I'm not going to say uh, them off yeah. the top of my head. Okay. But it's Roger Moore era, isn't it? It is. It's The Spy Love Me and Moonraker. So 
1976, um, Richard Maybaum was writing the Spy Who Loved Me script and they brought Christopher Wood in um, to to work on the final draft because he'd previously worked with Lewis Gilbert. Um, so Gilbert brought him on board because he wanted another writer to be involved. Um, and we spoke about this very recently as well um, because we, we covered it recently that Lewis Gilbert wanted to do something that he didn't think the previous two Roger Moore films had done had managed to do and they were trying to write the character very similar to how Connery was playing it so he wanted to step away from that so that is one of the reasons why Christopher Wood was brought on board um, and Cubby actually asked asked uh, Christopher Wood to create a villain with metal teeth that was inspired by horror from the book and so he came up with Jaws and also came up with Sandor um, who was inspired by a character called Slugsy Morant Mm. in the novel um broccoli was happy with the uh the the creations and um yeah he greenlit them and then because the film script was so different to the original story by fleming um they were they were given the task to create a novelization of the script uh, the Spy Who Loved Me. So there's two. It's it's confusing, isn't it? Because there's the novel The Spy Who Loved Me, and then there's James Bond The Spy Who Loved Me, and they're two yeah. two separate stories. One follows the film, and one is an Ian Fleming original. So two years later, and they're making another Bond film, and uh, Wood is back on board as he starts writing for the next one, Moonraker, and uh, he said that Tom Mankiewicz had mapped out a storyline when I came along. I had no idea what Lewis Gilbert's contribution was or if there was one. So, uh, yeah, he he got to work and did a similar sort of job um, as, as he'd done previously. Um, and again, because the the story was so different to the original, they did another, another novelization of the film um, yeah. called James Bond and Moonraker this time. Um, and he was asked about it in the early noughties about his time and he said I had a wonderful time on both Bond movies I prefer Spy because it was the first time and because I think it's a better movie and serves Roger the best of all his 007 roles agreed working on a Bond movie is a little like being Bond Cubby Broccoli Michael Wilson have always been astute in creating a great team atmosphere with in which everyone associated with the production is made to feel important and looked after splendidly um, so it's always reassuring to hear, isn't it? Uh, you know, someone who's been looked after. But we, we've we've seen that from Cubby. You know, when you're in the good side of Cubby and you're part of the family, he will look after you. In terms of his other work, do you do you know what else he's he's famous for? He's yes, got a, right. he's got he's got a pseudonym. Uh, yes. So I know this because when we did uh, our an- anniversary specials, uh, I think it was Steve O'Brien, with, our guest, was saying talking about Moonraker and how the writer of the Confessions films. Yes. And it's Christopher Wood, right? That's right, yeah. And he wrote as Timothy Lee. And yeah, they obviously, he, he was part of the, uh, the writing for the film adaptations as well. So they were novels and films. Do you want to just give a brief explanation of what a Confessions film is for our international listeners? It may oh, not be familiar. That is, <laughs> uh, it's, I mean, is there a, how can I describe this? Like a, because I want to say the word saucy, but, or, or, or the, but yeah, then, so I mean, to call them erotic is to sort of not call them is 
is to oversell it, I think. Yeah. Saucy is the right word. Saucy, randy. Uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're, they're films in the 70s, aren't they? I think all of them were 70s. Yeah. That were... Yeah. Oh, very much of their time. F- it featured a lot of nudity. Um, yeah. And the main character... I'll just go run through a different... I've got a list of the of the different yeah, go on. Um, professions that these were confessions of. So we've got window cleaner, driving instructor, holiday camp, hotel, traveling salesman, film extra, confessions from the clink, which is prison, in case anyone doesn't know, confessions of a private soldier, from the pop scene, which was turned into confessions of a pop performer, there's there's a there's a lot you know and um, I mean they're just porn, pornographic scenarios aren't they This is where they come from I guess Absolutely yeah you've got confessions yeah. of a milkman that's one of them so that's a, that's yeah. a classic isn't it yeah. uh, The one that stands out for me that I really remember is confessions of a window cleaner because that yeah. is the classic isn't it You know yeah he's climbing yeah. Up, climbing up a ladder starts cleaning the window There's a woman in the bath yeah. Oh blimey And what happens yeah. he, he he climbs through the window and uh, you know, managed his to what's the have it off would be the best uh, <laughs> bonk bonking. Yeah, with a married woman. Yeah, with yeah. a married woman. The husband comes home and he's got to escape naked and run down the street with his ladder. I mean, um, you could put these scenes in uh, in Moonraker, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I, I mean, it's the sort of film that would definitely not be made today. No. No, um, and he had he, he did, Christopher Wood did an interview in 2013 with the Independent, and he said the books and later the films got terrible reviews, but they were successful, and success was its own currency. So that so there you go. I mean, that, that's there's a lot of novels. I mean, dig them out if you must. I would recommend just watching a clip of a film rather than watching a whole film. I, I don't think you'd get through a whole one. Is that it for Christopher Wood? That's it for Christopher Wood, unless you want to add any more confessions. No, I was just looking at his, his Wikipedia, but I, I saw he wrote the script for um, Remo Williams, the um, the 90s, uh, um, is it 90s, 80s action film. It was also directed by Guy Hamilton. Um, if there's not a naked woman in the bath, I'm not interested. <laughs> and then he, he later did some other bits and bobs as well, but... Um, yeah, Christopher Wood, interesting uh, contribution, and you can see the sort of uh, change in uh, in tone when he comes on board for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, the spy who loved me. It definitely needed that injection to to change it, <laughs> didn't it? Yeah, it did need something. Yeah. Right. W is for Worcester, Arthur Worcester. Now, born in 1929, Arthur Worcester was a British filmmaker who was also second unit director on James Bond, starting with 1981's For Your Eyes Only and carrying on up to his involvement to in Die Another Day in 2002. And he is a very recognisable presence if you've ever watched any of the James Bond DVD extras. He's quite a diminutive little man, thick glasses, um, but there's loads of amazing stories on those DVDs, um, uh, documentaries. Um, So he was born in Middlesex and grew up in Wembley. He left school at 14 to work in his father's butchers, uh, which supplied meat to Wembley Film Studios, which was opposite. And uh, its production manager at Wembley Studios secured him an interview for a clapper loader's job with the Crown Film Unit, which was part of the government's Ministry of Information. So he was making, you know, uh, government um, informational films, those sorts Mm. of things. Um, 
uh, he worked on a, a film, a wartime film uh, called The True Story of Lily Marlene in 1944. That was his first credit and then worked on documentaries for much of his the rest of his career, really, um, making public, public information films for the Central Office of Information and other lots of different people. He did national service with the REF uh, in late 1940s. Um, and while he was there, he learned to repair aircraft instruments. And then when the Crown Film Unit closed in 52, Worcester, with some other colleagues, set up a production company called The Film Partnership. And while there, he became a camera operator. And he became sort of... Um, very well, um, very well known, um, very well respected film industry professional, shooting documentaries, directing many of them, um, and made films for loads of different people, including Pan Am. He shot wildlife documentaries, he shot current affairs programs. And then uh, in uh, 1952, uh, he, his company, the Film Partnership, shot uh, 3D colour footage of the Queen's coronation, mm. um, which has been restored and is in the British Film Institute now. And, and I remember at the current, there was time that it got re-released, I think, or shown on TV, um, this remastered footage. It's quite amazing stuff, really. Um, but yeah, he, he then went on to specialise in sports documentaries. And he was also one of the camera operators shooting um, colour footage uh, on the the day that England won the World Cup in 1966 for a documentary called Goal. Um, and then he also shot the Olympics for a number of uh, occasions. And uh, one of the movies that he did work for was on Stephen McQueen's Le Mans movie. So he got known for doing vehicles and sports and action stuff. Um, so working as a second unit director, he also worked on the Roger Moore film Gold in 1974. Uh, but he joined the Bond films in 1981, when John Glenn made his directorial debut in Few Your Eyes Only, and he invited, personally invited Arthur Worcester to be part of his his creative team, and they'd worked together many many years before that, working on a documentary called Eyes of a Child. And he said, "What attracted me to Arthur was his self reliance and understated talent. I knew Arthur was a formidable one man band and an expert documentary cameraman. He was prepared to fly in a fast fighter aircraft, ski." mountain climb and he was a terrific underwater cameraman so he's just the man needed on bond to do all these different you know mm. filming techniques um, and there's that famous story of when john glenn uh, introduced her arthur worcester to cubby broccoli and he said in stumbled arthur and he tripped over the carpet arthur was not what cubby expected and had a pronounced stutter when nervous cubby gave me an incredulous glance and it would take the next two weeks to convince him that Arthur was my man. <laughs> but he became a Bond mainstay and he was known for, you know, these daring exploits to capture footage and um, became a very big favourite of Cubby's, actually. And he sort of saw his unit as like the guys who could get the job done. John Glenn praised Arthur's contribution to the Bond films. He said, Arthur directed and photographed some incredible scenes. And when I think of the action on Fiori's Only, the car chase amongst the olive groves was terrific. On A View to a Kill, he managed to shoot the fire engine night chase through San Francisco. But to my mind, his best work was the incredibly, incredibly dangerous truck sequence on License to Kill. I mean, this is coming from John Glenn, who is one of the best Bond second unit directors as well. Mm. So, you yeah. know, it's high praise, really. Buster was also a helicopter cameraman. He shot the uh, the Neen Valley aerial footage of the Octopussy train fight as well. 
I mean, he was just instrumental. But when John Glenn left, he actually stayed on. He was one of the few to sort of continue on in that new era. Um, he shot uh, the bike going over the mountaintop in Goldeneye. He didn't do anything on Tomorrow Never Dies, but he did shoot some um, second unit stuff, shooting oil platforms for The World Is Not Enough. And then he, Worcester, Arthur Worcester, led a, a very small unit on a fishing boat into the waters off Cornwall to capture the um, the surfing sequence stuff at the beginning of Die Another Day. Hmm. That was the end of his Bond connection, though. And in 2007, Arthur Worcester was awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award by the British Society of Cinematographers. And he was... It's only ever been presented to 14 different people over 50 years. So that's quite amazing, wow. really. Um, his other credits include uh, Christopher Columbus, The Discovery, John Glenn's ill-fated film, Highlander 2, and also Raise the Titanic. Uh, but sadly, Arthur died in September 2020 after having Alzheimer's for a number of years. Um, and yeah, was survived by his wife and and, and family so um yeah great great presence on those on those um on those movies and obviously an instrumental part of that action-packed 80s era of bond yeah another another hidden figure you know that's doing massive job should we move on to the characters in our addendum section absolutely we yeah. covered a lot of these already in our film specials, so uh, we'll just rattle through these characters that fall under the letter W. Who have you got? So Wei Lin, played by Michelle Yeoh, who we've talked about very recently because uh, she appears in Tomorrow Never Dies. So she's a, a, a Chinese agent, um, and she's she works with Bond in Tomorrow Never Dies, which we, we've talked about. She's ranked as a colonel and is highly skilled in martial arts. Originally meant to be played by Natasha Henstridge, like we talked about in Tomorrow Never Dies episode, but eventually Michelle Yeoh got the got the role, and uh, so they added some some of the martial arts skills into the script. And Pierce Brosnan sang her praises as well, and described her as a wonderful actress who was serious and committed. And if you remember, we talked about she wanted to do her own stunts in the film, yeah. Uh, but the director Roger Spottiswood said no, it's too dangerous, and we won't get the insurance, so. That wasn't allowed. But new information. Did you know that she was in the early scripts of Die Another Day? Yes, I think we did talk about that. Um, Probably in they, Die Another it, Day. Because they go to Hong Kong, don't they? Yes. And um, sort of her reappearing in that. Yeah, but she was she was replaced by two separate characters. So, yeah, there's a, a draft of Die Another Day that, that had Michelle Yeoh, who was going to come back and re- reprise her role as Wei Lin. Um, and give Bond that ally that he needs. You know, when he falls out with them and escapes the... Uh, yeah. By stopping his heart, he escapes uh, his, his lockdown. Um, and, yeah, so she was going to help Bond in a fight in a lift um, and also help him out to go and seek Zhao. Um, so Waylon was going to give him a passport and a, and a gun. To get him on his way, really. Um, but she turned down the part because she was shooting uh, The Touch, which she, she was also a producer of. So she went on to do that instead and turned turned Dino the Day down. And the character of Waylin was replaced by Rachel Grant playing Peaceful Fountains of Desire, if you remember that character. The masseuse, yeah. Yeah. And uh, Holy, uh, who was uh, played 
Mr. Chang, the Chinese intelligence. Um, yeah, I know you mean the, the hotel guy. Yeah, so they they replaced the character, but yeah, would have been would have been good to see her make a little little comeback. Yeah, just want to say on Michelle Yeoh, obviously she's having a huge resurgence at the moment thanks mm-hmm. to everything everywhere all at once and lots of other different things and i really hope she wins an oscar for that but um i always think if if in the an alternative universe where they do get brosnan back to do another old man bond film then now would be the perfect time to do it and to team him up with Wei Lin. Yeah. um yeah. you know she would be the perfect bond foil for him to come back with because they're two you know i think they're, they're the star power of the two of them would be a huge draw. But anyway, that's just wishful thinking, I think. Yeah, plenty of wishful thinking. Yeah. So from the sublime to the ridiculous, I've got Dr. Molly Warmflash, who we covered very recently in The World Is Not Enough. And obviously Serena Scott Thomas played Dr. Molly Warmflash. Um, and as we discussed in that episode, she had worked with Purvis and Wade on her screen debut, which was in the film Let Him Have It. Famously, the younger sister of Christian Scott, Scott Thomas, She'd played Diana in the TV adaptation of Diana Who True Story. And in The World Is Not Enough, she is the doctor who gives Bond the clean bill of health in exchange for um, some rumpy pumpy. <laughs> this has turned into a confessions film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, beyond um, Bond, she uh, Serena Scott Thomas has worked on uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She was Bruce Willis's wife in the movie Hostage. But also she starred in Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice, which is one of my favourite films of the last few years, so that's interesting. And she returned to the royal family to play Kate Middleton's mother, Carol, in the 2011 Lifetime movie, William and Kate. So, uh, yeah, she played William's mother and William's mother-in-law. So there you have it. Uh, next we have Whisper. And uh, Whisper love is... You love love a whisper, the chocolate bar, whisper gold, yeah. gold. That's the uh, way forward. Absolute classic, yeah. Um, uh, whisper is uh, a, a henchman for Doctor Kananga, and he's played by Earl Jolly Brown, but voiced by Alistair Abel, and he obviously appears in Live and Let Die, um, and he's loosely based on a character that Fleming created in the novel of Live and Let Die. Um, I mean. He hardly does much, does he? I mean, he he brings Bond some some champagne. Your champagne, sir. <laughs> Which uh, <laughs> I always find ridiculous. Yeah. Roger Moore so angry. He's like, what? Because he can't hear him. And he gets eaten by a sofa as well, doesn't he? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, he's, he's a bizarre, bizarre character. I mean, in a film of bizarre, bizarre characters, yeah, Whisper is, is certainly one of them. I like Whisper. Oh, don't get me wrong. I'm a fan, but it's it's weird. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Mr. White, uh, obviously a very famous or very uh, involved character in the Daniel Craig era of Bond films, member of Quantum, also Spectre, um, appeared in three Bond movies, played by Jesper Chris Christensen, the Danish actor. And obviously, he's the father, or his character, Mr. White, is the father of Madeleine Swan, which makes him Matilde's, Matilde Bond's grandfather. So Bond does have a sort of a family link to him now, um, if he wasn't dead. Uh, Anyway, so uh, Jesper Christensen was cast to play Mr. White for Casino Royale. He said he didn't um, have to do a screen test. They cast him based on his showreel alone. 
Um, and then he spent sort of three weeks on the movie shooting in France, uh, Italy and at Pinewood. He said that he didn't get much of a chance to bond with Daniel Craig because they're both so busy. But he did have high praise for Martin Campbell. He said, I thought he was a very, very charming man and very competent, collected and calm. He didn't make things more complicated. He returned, obviously, to in Quantum, um, having been shot in the leg by Bond at the end of Casino Royale. It's revealed that Mr. White is in the boot of Bond's car at the start of Quantum of Solace. Um, and actually, fun fact, they shot a death scene for Mr. White in Quantum of Solace, but it was deleted. So it was no longer canon, paving the way for him to refer, return Inspector. Mm. However, it seemed unlikely he was going to return Inspector because in 2010, on a red carpet interview, he said that his interlude as a, Bond, a villain in the James Bond series is over. Today, I admit that in regard, Quantum of Solace and Casino Royale are really shit. All of the people die in them, so the two movies are enough for me. However, he was convinced to come back, <laughs> and it was confirmed that he was returning for Spectre. And he says it's a truly exciting script and a very capable team, so it'll be fun. <laughs> so I wonder what changed his mind. Um, mm, so that's Mr. White. Uh, one, one little nugget of info about him, but it, it was revealed in the Sony hack that... Um, Inspector, it was going to reveal that Mr. White and Blofeld had served in the same battalion of the French Foreign Legion together, and that's how they knew each other. Um, but obviously, we learn then in No Time to Die that actually Mr. White worked as a poisoner for Spectre. So, um, mm. yeah, that's the that's that story there. But from one Mr. White to another, indeed, yes, Mr. Willard White. Uh, <laughs> A double W. So Willard, Willard White is uh, is a billionaire, an American billionaire who um, he's a bit of a recluse and he he, he lives uh, lives at the top of a, a really tall building, doesn't he? In Diamonds Are Forever, um, yeah, the in Vegas, yeah. in Vegas, yeah. The character himself is played by uh, American actor and singer Jimmy Dean. Um, the character of Willard White, and we talked about this in the Diamonds Are Forever episode, so do go back and listen to this was based on of the same nature you know the the billionaire howard hughes who um when they were filming this was was living in las vegas and you know was a recluse as well they had suggestions that they were going to use the twin brother of goldfinger in this if you remember as the villain yeah. but di they didn't because they uh they used this because cubby had a dream that's and, right uh, yeah D dana uh broccoli she says, one morning he woke and he said, I've had the most fabulous dream. It was about Howard Hughes. I thought I was outside the penthouse window and he had his back to me and I was knocking on the window and I was saying, Sam, that was the nickname that his close friends called him. And when he turned around, it wasn't Howard Hughes at all. It was a total stranger, he said. And that's what I've been looking for. This fellow, he's kept captive in his penthouse and everything below is still going on as though he exists. So yeah, from that idea, he brought on board Tom Mankiewicz to develop that, you know, develop his dream, um, and that's how we got that uh, plot line in Diamonds Are Forever. Um, so Jimmy Dean, um, it was actually working for the real Howard Hughes at at this at this time, um, when Cubby spotted him and wanted wanted him to play the character, but Jimmy Dean obviously thought it was risky as you would you know if you're going to be mocking your boss essentially um so he agreed to do it on the proviso that they sent howard hughes the 
the print, uh, 16 mil print of every Bond movie up to that point. If you remember that, we did talk about that in Diamonds Are Forever as well. There were a few stipulations on, on him. Yeah. Um, so Jimmy Dean himself, he was is an actor, musician, singer, entertainer, entrepreneur. Um, but he actually gave Jim Henson his first break on the Jimmy Dean show. Wow. Um, with the character Rolf. Uh, in 1963 so who knows oh, without, without that we might not have had the muppets um is this the first mention of the muppets on this podcast? it is we've got well we've, we haven't got many episodes left we've got to got to get them in, while we in somewhere and so in 19 i like this because yeah, i just think it's charming in 1969 he founded the jimmy dean sausage company with, <laughs> his, with his brother don and they did really well because jimmy dean basically did the commercials as well so he used his sort of his humor and his voice um to really get the personality across um really successful and they were acquired by um consolidated foods who became the sara lee corporation and jimmy dean remained jimmy dean remained as involved as a spokesman for the company but the reason that's important is because in 2004 he released his autobiography, and the title is fantastic. 30 Years of Sausage, 50 Years of Ham. <laughs> I just think it's brilliant. Yeah, that is superb. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's that's Willard White played by Jimmy Dean, who seems like a right character. God, yeah. Um, from one character to a couple of others, Diamond of Forever. Classic. So we've got Winton Kidd, and they're obviously the hitman couple from that film, played by Bruce Glover and Putter Smith. Um, inspired by the characters in the Fleming book of the same name, but in the book they're killers who work for the Spangled Mob. In the film they work for Blofeld. Interestingly, they share no scenes with Blofeld, though, um, getting their orders um, from different people. Um, now, I mean, they're quite memorable villains. They've obviously got a very strange sense of humour. They've got this thing where they complete each other's sentences. Um, and they kill or, or try to kill quite a lot of people in Diamonds Are Forever. They kill a South African dentist by putting a scorpion down his shirt. They blow up a helicopter. They drown a lady in the ca- in a canal in Amsterdam and make some crude jokes about it. Yeah. They drown Plenty O'Toole after they uh, get her, uh, I think, confused with um, um, the other... No, they don't, is it? Yeah, it's Plenty O'Toole they drown, isn't it? Yeah. Because they think she's the other Bond girl. And then obviously they tried to kill Bond unsuccessfully quite a few times, including right at the end um, on the boat using the bomb surprise, some bomb surprise, and that memorable yet awful scene. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Wint, obviously played by Bruce Glover, father of Crispin Glover, Marty McFly's dad in Back to the Future, famously. Now an, a, a mu- another a musician called Paul Williams had been cast to play Mr. Wint. But they couldn't agree on a fee, and so he was replaced by Bruce Glover. And Mr. Kidd was paid by another musician, a guy called Putter Smith, also a non-actor. So they were looking to hire two musicians to play these roles, but that fell through. And instead we got Bruce Glover and then Putter Smith. And Putter Smith at the time was a jazz bassist, still is, I think, who played quite famously with Thelonious Monk. And he was being, uh, he was actually playing in a jazz club when he was spotted by Guy Hamilton, who cast him as Mr. Kidd. I mean, it's absolutely bonkers, really, to think that he was seen playing in a club and then landed a role of a Bond hitman. Um, because yeah. he doesn't look the part, really. No, not at all. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, I think that adds to it, sort of. 
Um, but uh, talking about it, Bruce Glover said that Potter was just great because he was real. Great directors bring on people who have never acted before because they have a reality. If you can get them to just be real, they're terrific. I mean, obviously, it's very subversive, actually, that we've got a pair of gay hitmen in a James Bond film in 1971. Mm. Um just by having gay characters in major roles. Both actors obviously were straight, um, but to have these gay characters and gay representation, even if it was sort of homophobic, largely homophobic uh, a lot of the time, it was quite a big um, bit of um, uh, representation on screen. Uh, But it did lead to some backlash in places, and the film was actually picketed in New York for it. And looking back on it... um, in 1920 uh, sorry in 2021 putter did an interview and he said a conductor once came to me and said you know i boycotted you in new york and i said i'm gee i'm sorry i didn't write this shit (laughs) but i knew it was a courageous thing to do i don't feel like i was somebody fighting for civil rights i just had this opportunity and i took it so yeah that's winton kid what do you think of winton kid at least they're memorable aren't they you know yeah in, in in a film that you know it's it's a difficult watch. It's just it feels like a bit of a slog. I think they're pretty interesting. Yeah, they definitely make a, an interesting screen presence. Mm. And, and actually, it's one of those things where you think back. What are your memories of Diamonds Are Forever? And you think, well, it's the one with Winton Kid in it, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. They are the probably the most memorable, or one of the most memorable bits of it. But uh, yeah, I think they're all right. So finally, we have Vincent Wong, and. Um, he was a British Chinese actor, born in 1928. He died in 2015. And he had a really long career in TV and film. And the reason we've got him here is because he was in four James Bond films. Ooh. Um, so, you know, playing various characters, but uh, only only once was he credited, actually. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to give you the title of the character he played in, you're going to guess the film. Okay. <laughs> okay, go on. So first off, nice and easy, Goldfinger's Henchman. Well, I see, I think Goldfinger, obviously. Correct, yeah. Right, so, Liparous Guard. Spy Love Me. Yes. Yeah, that's the Liparous. Uh, Casino Croupier. Well, this could be anything, yeah. but let me think. Let me think. So it's going to be after the spy love me. So I'm going to. Oh, is say... it? I'm not doing it chronological. I'm trying to throw. Oh, you off. you're not. Yeah. You're not. Oh, you throw me off. Casino croupier. Oh, Spectre. Diamonds are forever. Ah, there we go. And then his credited, he played Sanjang Lee, who was a military officer to Gustav Graves in Ah Die Another Day. Day. Yeah. There we go. Um, he was also in two Batman films, oh. so he's he's doing the rounds. He played Crime Lord One in Batman, and Old Asian Prisoner in Batman Begins. He's also been in numerous Doctor Who episodes, so you will have definitely seen him. And any other British TV show you can name, he will have popped up in. Um, it's a long a long list, but also he was. He was on the photograph. You remember the Colonel Sun pan paperback cover? I yeah, vividly remember it. Yeah, that's Vincent Wong. Wow. Yeah. So he was also photographed for that. So that's that's quite an iconic cover. That that initial first first it's one. It's got the light coming out of the eye, hasn't it? Yeah, and it has. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, he's 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 stands through the uh, 
the Bond's test of time, all the way back to the 60s, up yeah, to amazing. 2002, you know, novels and films. So he's might not be credited, but he's there, isn't he? You know, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's often with these, I love these recurring actors that pop up in Bond because uh, there is quite a lot of them. Um, yeah. But it's nice when you spot them and see them. I think probably when you look at it, the pictures, you know, Die Another Day is probably, I mean, that's the credited role, isn't it? That's the one yeah. you remember. But yeah. now you said Colonel Sun as well. You think, oh, yeah, of course. Mm. Of course, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, an amazing, um, yeah, just one of those jobbing actors that sort of pops up in Bond. Absolutely. And time, and yeah. obviously at the time where an Asian face on British in British TV and films would have been harder to come by. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. It, that meant he got a lot, a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that wraps up our episode on the letter W. Um, I hope you enjoyed this um, episode. We'll have uh, next week's episode. We'll be looking at the life and times of Mr. Michael G. Wilson, which I'm looking forward to. The last of the Bond producers that we've uh, to cover. Mm. Um, so it's going to be an interesting one. We'll be looking at his input and his many cameos and obviously his son greg wilson who's now involved in the bond film so yeah please join us for that um, but it does signal that we are getting very close to the end of the james bond a to z and as we mentioned last week uh we'd love your input in the final episode so if you do have any questions for us that you've been dying to ask before we go away or if there's any um clips you want to send us or anything that you want to uh contribute to the final show um, then please send them over. Um, you can uh, find us uh, on email at podcast at jamesbond uh, a to uk, or you can send us a message on social media as well, Brendan. At jamesbond a to z on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Yes, so uh, yeah, send them in as soon as you can because we are going to be recording those final episodes very, very soon. And uh, yeah, so it just remains for me to say that the James Bond A to Z podcast will return next week. Ciao. James Bond A to Z podcast is hosted and produced by Tom Butler and Brendan Duffy. With music by Tom Ingemels and artwork by Helen Dolly. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. been known to go on about why Jimmy Dean sausage is the best-selling sausage in the country. I say things like quality, finest pork, finest spices, all that is true. But you ask the people who made it number one, the people who buy it, why do you like Jimmy Dean sausage? And you know what they say? Very simply, they say, because we think it tastes the best. I ain't gonna argue with that. Taste for yourself why Jimmy Dean is America's favorite sausage. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.